Thank you, Smith family. Appreciate that very much. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Kings 18, continuing our series called God's Word to a Divided Kingdom, 1 Kings 18. Now, there's a challenge in choosing. It's difficult to choose sometimes. Um, When you have children and you make the declaration that you can only have one dessert, and then there's the crisis. Is it the cake or the cookies or the ice cream? But they don't want to choose just the cake or the cookies, the ice cream. They want all of the cake and the cookies and the ice cream. You don't want just one. No, you can't have all of them. You have to just choose one, and there's a crisis moment because to choose one is to not choose another. And uh, you can laugh, but you can't say yes to everything. You have to say no. You have to choose to say no. There is an art to saying no. Uh, From the beginning of our series in 1 Kings 11 all the way through to this moment, we've talked about the danger of compromise, how Solomon chose poorly. He had, um, excuse me, he had chosen bad relationships, and he'd allow false religion to creep into the culture and creep into his own nation. And so this theme of choosing has been under the surface to this point. It's been subtle. We've seen bad choices, and now it kind of gets thrust to the forefront as Elijah comes on the scene in the last chapter. And Elijah, the prophet of God, speaks to the king and says, you are in disobedience. King Ahab had married Jezebel and had brought in Baal worship into the kingdom. Not just this syncretistic worship of Dan and Bethel like we'd seen with Jeroboam. No, no, this was full out Baal worship. And so, so Elijah says, you must, there will be no rain until my voice. And Elijah had made a choice. We see this in 1 Kings 17. He, is cho- he chooses to trust God. God brings him through a very personal, very private trial, testing three different times. No one else is around watching him except this old widow woman and her son as they see Elijah tested in person, in private. And then now, as he's learned to trust God in private, God is going to push him onto the main stage where he learns to show or he demonstrates his trust of God here in public. Let's ask for, pray, let's ask for grace and let's ask for God's wisdom as we look at this passage today. Father, we, we desperately need you to be here and among us today. We need your word to speak into our hearts and we need your spirit to show us where, we're sh- where we've come short, where we are, have fallen, uh, where we need to change. We're thankful that your word is unchanging. And Lord, you are unchanging, and we're thankful that you, your word is fresh to us today. And so, God, may we apply it to our hearts. May we see the need to choose. May we make that choice today to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give you several different scenarios, maybe, or different scenes in which choosing is very, very important, how we learn to choose, and what God brings our way in order to force us to choose. Let's take a look at this first, uh, the first thing. I'm going to call it when the world is falling apart. And when the world is falling apart, we have to learn to choose. Let's read in verse 1, chapter 18. He says, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house, 
Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Verse 5. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. This, this passage shows us some very desperate people. In fact, the time here is a time of desperation. God had withheld rain from Samaria because of their idol worship, and they had not repented. They had not turned back to God despite the lack of rain. And so, so this is a time, it turns into a time of desperation, severe famine. That's the first sign of desperation. People are desperate for food. You have human life, even animal life endangered by this, by this famine. God has been providing for Elijah and this widow woman throughout in Zarephath this whole time. The rest of the nation has been suffering under a three-year drought. Look at verse 4. We see more desperation from Jezebel. She's massacred the prophets of the Lord. She's desperate for control and that Baal be the only God that's worshiped in Israel. So she kills the prophets of the Lord. But the prophets of the Lord had survived with the help of this man named Obadiah. They are hiding in caves. They are afraid of losing their lives. Fifty to a cave. In verse 5, we have Ahab and Obadiah. They're looking for grass so they don't have to kill off their cattle. They're desperate. They're saying, this is a bad situation. This is not good. And in verse 6, it says that Obadiah and Ahab separate. They start the chapter divided. They explore the land looking for anything that can feed their animals. They say, we've got to find something. We're going to have to start killing our livestock because they're starving to death. Now, Obadiah is an interesting person, and you may have studied him. If you're an ABF, you would have studied a little bit about Obadiah. Obadiah, not the same Obadiah that we have as a prophet in the Minor Prophets. This Obadiah, his name means a servant of the Lord. And here he is serving Ahab. He is placed within the kingdom as a servant of God. Yet he's still serving the king. And he's faithful to the king. God's placed him there for a very specific purpose. And he's kind of working as a, a little bit of a spy. Maybe you might think of that as he's working underneath the king's nose and preserving his own prophets of the Lord. There's desperation all around. It's also a time of fear. Look at verse 7. Now as Obadiah went on his way, Suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, fell on his face and says, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. And this time of fear, even the prophet of the Lord, Obadiah, has a great deal of fear about what's going to happen to him. Because he's caught between two kingdoms. He's got the kingdom of Ahab and the kingdom of God. He's serving Ahab as a prophet of the Lord, and it seems God has put him there for a specific purpose, but Obadiah is still fearful. So what does Elijah say to Obadiah? He says, go tell your Lord, tell your master, tell him Elijah is here. Now in Hebrew, that phrase means behold Elijah. It's like saying, uh, go say, behold Elijah, here he is. And, and immediately notice Obadiah's fear at doing this because Elijah has a reputation apparently. And, and look at verse nine. He says, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they say he is not here, 
He took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. He's hunting Elijah down. Is there any reason why he wouldn't be? Elijah is the reason that they're having this drought. They've got to get rid of this drought. Their, their crops are dying. Their people are dying. It's amazing. He looks everywhere except inwardly for the problem, right? Ahab looks everywhere. He looks at other nations. He says, find this prophet Elijah. They said, we don't have him. Sign a statement saying you don't have him because if you, don't, if you do have him and we find out you, you didn't tell us, we're going, to, we're going to deal with you harshly. And so they take oaths and all these things. Like, look at verse 11. And now, this is still Obadiah talking, you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place Well, I don't know. So when I go tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. It's amazing here that we see God's protecting power in Elijah's life. This whole time, Elijah has been living in Zarephath. And remember where Zarephath is on our map. It is in the hometown of where Jezebel's family's from. They're from Sidon. Zarephath is of Sidon. He's in Phoenicia, Baal country. He's right there. And Ahab is sending people everywhere to look for this guy, and he's right there. God is protecting Elijah. So, so here it is, everyone looking for him. And, 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 and Obadiah says, I'm worried that if I obey you, what's going to happen is I'm going to go say, Ahab, Ahab, I found Elijah. He's here. And then we're going to get the whole troop. We're going to come find you, Elijah. We're going to walk and you're going to be gone. And they're going to say, really, Obadiah, you made us do this. And they're going to kill me because they thought I lied to him. So he is fearful here. This is a time of fear. Look at verse 12. Continue to read with me in verse 12. He says, but I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Obadiah knows he's on thin ice. At least the people know. He says, Don't you, didn't you hear about what I did? So it's known that Obadiah has preserved these lives. It's probably not known to Jezebel yet, but it's known by some. And he says, it's, I'm on thin ice here. If I cross Ahab, he will kill me. So notice Elijah's promise. Look at verse 15. Elijah's promise is so telling. He says, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. Elijah makes a promise based on the living God. This is key. That the God we serve and the God Elijah prays to and the God we pray to is the God who lives. As the Lord lives. He says, you don't have to worry about this, Obadiah. Today I will present myself. It's a time of desperation. It's a time of fear. And we also see it's a time of anger. Look at verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I, this is Elijah speaking, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, have followed the Baals. When he sees Elijah, he confronts him and blames him for the bad fortune. In fact, when he says you are a troubler, this word trouble has the idea of a bad luck charm or someone who consults with the dark arts like a spellcaster. Oh, you are the one who's caused us to have this bad thing happen. The word is akor. Now, it's interesting to me that we see in Joshua the story of Achan whose name means trouble. And we have this story, Joshua, all the sons of Israel with him. Remember how Achan stole 
from Jericho and hid, and then they lose the battle to Ai because of the sin, the trouble that he brings. And so here's the picture, that Achan is a troubler. He brings upon them defeat because of his sin. So when Ahab looks at Elijah, he says, you are an Achan. You're a troubler. You're the reason. You're the one who's causing the problems in Israel today. I want you to read this passage with me up on the screen. He says, Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garments, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his his tent, and all that he had, they brought them to the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So while Israel stoned him with stones, they burned him with fire, and they stoned them with stones. We see the time of anger here that Ahab has towards Elijah. He says, you have been troubling Israel, but Elijah says, it's not me that's troubling Israel. I'm not the reason that Israel is struggling. The reason Israel is struggling is because of your wickedness and your, your neglect of the Lord. You have followed Baal. You have not followed the Lord. You should have looked inwardly. Their greatest lack was not the lack of rain. Their greatest lack was their faithfulness to God. They had forsaken the Lord and had followed Baal. So a challenge is given in verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah commands the king. The prophet commands the king and says, everyone needs to come here for a public test and a public confrontation. We will settle this once and for all. Gather the prophets of Baal. Gather the prophets of Asherah. These prophets had been sitting and eating at your table. You have have allowed them into your own place of fellowship, and you need to bring them out because there is going to be a challenge between one man, Elijah, and the many, many prophets of Baal. God here, we see the world, when it seems to be falling apart, God calls us to choose. God calls us to choose. Let's look at this next moment in this story, beginning in verse 20, is when God challenges your worldview. For many of us, you've experienced something like this. Your life is moving along at regular speed. Everything seems normal. You've made assumptions about your life. Maybe you've made these assumptions. You say, well, I'm in control of what's going on. That's my number one assumption. Number two, maybe there is not really a God who cares about me. At least if there is one, he doesn't care what I do or say or how I live my life. I am independent, you might think. Number three, you might think to yourself, well, naturalism explains everything. I mean, I know the scientists out there, uh, they have an explanation for everything, so I I just rely on them. Whatever they say goes. But then God does something that completely wrecks your worldview. God brings something into your life, and He challenges you, and you realize without a doubt that the way you saw things cannot be correct. And the way you had built your life on these false assumptions comes crumbling down. Maybe it's the first time you're confronted with the intricacies of creation. Or maybe you interact with something truly beautiful and realize it points to something beyond the here and now. You look at the stars at night and you realize how small you are compared to the infinite or massive universe. You, you, are, you are overwhelmed by this and you think to yourself, whatever, whatever this feeling is that God is, is he's, he's, he's cutting into your worldview and he's saying, you need to listen to me. God is challenging your assumptions. God is challenging the way that you have built your world around you, and you need to listen to what God is doing. Because when God challenges your worldview, He's often challenging you 
to change. First, he challenges here to choose a side. Look at verse 20. Elijah gives a challenge. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Elijah speaks to the people and gives them a challenge. How long will you keep this divided mind? You cannot sit on the fence. You must learn to choose one or the other. How long do you falter? This is the word limp. Why are you limping between two different opinions? There's two truth propositions on the table that cannot both be true. Either God is the Lord or Baal is the Lord. And he says you cannot hold to both of these simultaneously. You cannot have that the Lord is God and Baal is God. It does not work. Either one is true or the other is true. And you must not limp between two opinions. So it can't be simpler. Who is the true God? And once you determine who the true God is, follow him. And the people don't answer. You see that? It says the people answer him not a word. They don't know what they're agreeing to. They don't want to make a decision too quickly. They think to themselves, well, let's see what this guy's got going on. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, what's, I don't know why we're here. I'm sure there's more than one person who's wondering, like, what are we doing here? Like, what, what's happening? Why are we up on Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel, depending on how you, how you say it, is, was a raised plateau there by the river. It's right into Sidon area. If you saw it in your map, it's in northern Israel. It's right across into Baal's territory, if you think of it in terms of how the people there worshiped Baal. And on this raised plateau, it was known as a place of worship. And so Elijah is calling this a challenge on Baal's turf. He's taking the war to Baal's territory. And here's his proposition. Look at verse 24. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. You will call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Elijah claims that he is the only prophet of the Lord left. Is that true? No. No, it's not true. We know from just a few chat verses earlier, Obadiah had saved 50 prophets in one cave and 50 prophets in another. There are, 50, there are 100 prophets of the Lord, but they're not with him at that moment, so he feels alone. And there he stands, and he, he gets a little bit self-righteous, in my own opinion. He says, I alone am left, but there he is. He is standing alone. That is much as true. But there are more prophets of the Lord, but he, in this moment, he even knows Obadiah. Obadiah is a prophet of the Lord. Yet he is standing there, he is, he is standing there by himself, and he's declaring that although there are many prophets, although there are many prophets of Baal, and there's only one of me, we're going to see who God honors as the true prophet of God by doing a simple test. We'll have a bull prepared, we'll put it on an altar, have another bull prepared, put it on an altar, and whichever God burns up the offering, that's as simple as it goes. Let me just make a couple applications here as we, as we look at this passage, look at this point, and that is that religious challenges are not just for priests, they're also directed at the people. Do you notice that Elijah deals with the people here first? 
He goes to the people. That's, that's you. You might think, well, I, I'm not an expert in this. I can't make a decision about this kind of stuff. You see, I haven't studied religion. I haven't studied like comparative religion. I don't know all the religions in the world. God says he goes to the people first, and he says, you need to make a decision. That means you need to make a choice. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a prophet. You need to make a choice. This is not just directed towards the, the higher-ups in this, in this group. This is also directed at the people. You can't offload your responsibility to choose rightly to someone else. God demands each one of you choose rightly. Secondly, don't listen to the polls. Truth is not up for a vote. It doesn't matter how many people say something is true. If it's not true, it's not true. It doesn't matter how many people are left standing for the truth. The truth is the truth. So we find ourselves in situations today, even in our culture, where you feel like, am I just, have I lost my mind? Am I crazy? Everybody else seems to be crazy. Like the truth is unchanging and too many prophets avail. It doesn't make them right. And thirdly, I want to make the point that feeling alone is not the same as being alone. Because Elijah here is saying, I alone am left. But in reality, God had not left him alone. And he reminds him in the next chapter that that's the case. And so you might feel alone in your job. You might be the only person that stands up for truth and that, and that is able to speak truth into a moment. You might feel alone, but you are not alone. Because God has many people who will obey Him. Secondly, I want you to notice there's a challenge, not just to choose a side, but to evaluate the effectiveness of your God. And I put God in a lowercase g for this reason, that what Elijah does here is he forces these people to really take a step back and see what their God is really capable of doing, what they worship, their God. What do you worship? Your God. What is it truly capable of doing? Look at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself, prepare it first, for you are many. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire on it or under it. He sets the terms. They will be the first to, to choose. There's no excuses here. They can't say, well, you had the, the, the more flammable bull. Okay, that, that doesn't work. They have, they have the opportunity to choose, and they choose and they will be uh, able to prepare, just not offer the fire. They agree, and they begin to cry out to Baal. Look at verse 26. They took the bull, which was given them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. They said, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Just like when Elijah said, choose today, and the people said, not a word. They prayed to their God, and he says, not a word. He doesn't reply. And in fact, they get a little bit concerned. So much so, it says, if you read the rest of verse 26, it says that they, uh, they leaped up about the altar which they had made. They began to cry out and beg. There was no voice hearing. There's, there's this emphasis here in this chapter that they just kept trying and trying and trying, and they began to do things to try to make their God pay attention to them. It reminds me of what Psalm 115 tells us. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, they do not speak. Ears they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throats. People make idols, and he says this, you make an idol, and you end up becoming like that idol. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts them. You trust an idol that has feet but can't walk, has hands but can't handle, has eyes but can't see, you end up becoming blind, 
unable to do things, unable to go places, because your trust has been in something that cannot save you. So, Elijah does something pretty fascinating. He begins to mock. Verse 27, it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah is suggesting that the Baal who they worship was as limited as human beings are. Maybe he's meditating. That means he's sad and he's in grumpy mood. Maybe he's had a bad day. Uh, Maybe he doesn't want to come out and talk to you right now because he's grumpy. Maybe he's limited in his self-control. He's unable to get over whatever problem he has so he can attend to your prayers. Uh, Then he says, perhaps he's busy. Maybe he's gone somewhere. Maybe he's withdrawn. Maybe he's limited in his abilities. He's only able to attend to one thing at a time, and he's busy somewhere else, and you know, you're just not important enough for him. Thirdly, he says, perhaps he's on a journey. He's limited in his location. He can't come to you because he's not here. He's out there somewhere. He says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to wake him up. He's limited in his strength. He's limited in his energy. He can't hear you because he needed to take a nap. Some of you are like, I, I need to take a nap every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, we're human, right? We, we, we face the limits, and he's like, this guy is no better than you. In fact, the idea that Baal worshipers had was that when a famine would come, Baal would either die or fall asleep. He would go visit Moat, who was the god of death, and then he needed to be, he needed to be wakened from his slumber and brought back so that the rain would come. Remember Baal's Baal is the storm god to the Canaanites. He carries a lightning bolt. He causes the rains and the thunder. He's the one who provides the rain so that the ground is fertile and so that people have their crops. That's what they believe. They worshiped this false demon god, Baal. And so he is mocking Baal every step along the way, and he's saying, I want you to challenge the effectiveness of your god. How effective is your god that, that he needs to be wakened? that he, he can't even take the time out of his day to come see you. In fact, they get into false worship. Look at verse 28, even worse. They cry aloud, they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. The first thing we see here is this cutting, this blood gushing out. This was called representative worship. They believed that they would have to act out what they wanted their God to do because their God was not smart enough to just understand words. They had to act it out. So they would gush blood on the ground and say, see, like blood gushing, so send rain, send fire. And, and, and they, would, they would do these things. They began to prophesy, it says, uh, verse 29, midday was past, they prophesied, or they were ecstatic. They, they lost control of themselves until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No one heard them. This was completely fruitless, completely pointless. Let me point out that if you have a false idol, a false god. Your idol will fail you when you need it the most. It is the way it works. God allows us to see in our lives very often that what we trust in as an idol to get us through hard times, to give us comfort, to speak meaning into our lives, if you put a lot of, of, of work and a lot of weight on something that is not God, it will fail you when you need it the most. I've seen this with people in their relationships, with their work, with their careers, with their goals in life, 
How, how many young people say, I want to be a star athlete, and then they, 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 they break a leg or they hurt themselves, and they're sitting there, and they realize their career is gone just like that? How, how many people have, have placed all their confidence in that spouse or that girlfriend or that boyfriend, and they, they think, oh, that, if I could just get married to that person, if I could live my life with that person, everything would be great, and then they get dumped, and they go through a deep despair. How many parents think to themselves, I just need a child. I, once I have a baby, everything will be great. Life will be awesome. Life will be amazing. I'll have meaning in my life. A lot of moms go through this struggle. And they have the child, and they look at the child, and all the child does is cry and want food. And, and, and sometimes you're like, this child is, is, is frank. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I really feel fulfilled at all. I feel torn. And, and, and when we put our idols, and we lift up, things that are not God, and we put the weight of worship behind them, they will fail us. Evaluate your idols. What power do they truly have? If your idol is success, what's the best it could give you? What fleeting pleasures would justify worshiping this false God? Thirdly, we see there's a challenge here to trust the Lord. Far more than simply acknowledging God, Elijah says, or Elijah shows us what it means to trust God in front of a crowd. He stands confidently and worships God before all the people and all these prophets of Baal. He prepares the site. Look at verse 30. We're going to go briefly through this. Elijah said to the people, come near to me. All the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. He made it useful again. It was broken down. And he takes it, and he repairs the altar. Verse 31, he took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. He reminds them of the unified kingdom, their history, the 12 tribes. He reminds them they should be worshiping God in Jerusalem at the temple. These people were not in the south. They were in the north. They saw themselves divided off. He says, remember, you're part of the 12 tribes. Then verse 32, with stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. He put the wood in order, he cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trenches with water. The water done multiple times poured on the sacrifice itself in the presence of everyone, so much so that it filled this little trench. Now imagine how scarce water had been at this time. To put that much water on uh, an offering would have been a stretch for him. It would have been a very big challenge for the people to, to acknowledge, to, to, but he wants to do it. He wants to show how powerful God is. He wants there to be no doubt, no doubt what's going on. So Elijah will take a moment to pray aloud. He would take this moment to pray aloud. And when he prays, we really don't hear, get to hear him pray that much in the Bible. But I want you to notice how he wants the people to know the power of Almighty God. Look at verse 36. So it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, 
and you have turned their hearts back to you again. He references the past. He references Abraham, Isaac, and not just Jacob. He references his other name, Israel, the name that God had given him to talk about the covenant he'd made with them. Let it be known. Here's the purpose. He says, I want people to know that you're God, that you are, you are the one. You are God, not Baal. I want them to know that I am your servant, that the word that I'm speaking is, is true, that, the word, that they can trust what I'm saying. And in verse 27, he says, hear me so the people will know you're not God. Hear me so the people can know that you are the true God and also that you are working to turning their hearts back again. That God's desire is that the people worship him rightly. God cares about hearts of people that have been captured by Baal worship. God doesn't just want us to worship with our hands and with our outward activity. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart and all your soul, and all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. God cares about your heart, your inner man. And here Elijah says, Lord, let them know that you're turning their hearts back. You're turning their hearts back. Notice the contrast here between the way that the prophets of Baal had spoken and prayed and how, the, how Elijah prayed. The contrast is stark Prophets of Baal pray all day, leaping in the altar, on the altar, cutting themselves, doing whatever they could to bring attention, yet Baal did not. He could not respond. Now notice with the simple prayer what happens next, because we see here a challenge to respond to the Lord. Verse 38, God responds, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. One verse, one moment, immediately God responds. He has the last word of the day. Fire comes down. It's like a bolt of lightning consumes everything before them. Notice Elijah has asked the people to come close. They are right around that altar. He says, come close to me, hear me. He prays, and God sends a bolt of lightning out of the sky. Remember Baal's symbol? Remember how Baal was identified? He is the storm god. He is the one with the lightning bolt in his hand. He's the one who's supposed to be in control of the sky. But when Elijah prays to the God of the universe, he sends lightning, and he sends lightning to consume that burnt offering, and not just the bolt. See, that was just the part of the offering they had decided. They said, well, you know, whoever's offering is burned up, but God does more than what they ask. He consumes the bull. He consumes the wood. He consumes the stones. He consumes all the water. Everything is licked up. And if you were standing there, how would you have responded? Some of you, 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 are, you, you respond with a surprise when there's a bolt of lightning that, that, that hits right nearby, like you jerk, you jerk and jump, right? Can you imagine? The, the, the surprise of that bolt of lightning. I mean, you've been waiting all day for Baal to respond. He hasn't done anything. One prayer, and now this massive sound. I can't imagine the sound of the thunder and the lightning of the fire that comes out of heaven and consumes all this. And the people, it says, verse 39, look at your Bible. It says, when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They knew immediately this was not normal. They fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is is God. They understand something, the same thing that the woman at Zarephath understood, that the Lord Yahweh is God. They are not limping between two opinions anymore. If the Lord is God, serve Him. So they do. They say, obviously, this is who we serve. 
They humbly fall on their faces, contrition and worship, and they make the declaration, Yahweh is God. Said twice for emphasis, they respond to him. They had seen the competition. They recognize that the Lord is the only true God, and they respond as they should. They make a choice. They choose to follow God. So Elijah responds in verse 40. He says, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. They seize him. He brings him down to the book Kishon and executes them there. He removes the prophets. And then we see this next moment in the story, the last moment, the, the closing moments of the story that shows us that God keeps his promises. Because all the story's not finished yet. There's still been a drought. <clears throat> so Elijah does what Elijah does, and he prays. Look at verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. How's that for confidence? So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Carmel, and he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. He prays with anticipation of an answer. He sends his servant to look for the clouds several times. Seven times he says this repeatedly, go look, go look, it's not enough. He's praying, Lord, please bring rain. And it came to pass, verse 44, on the seventh time, he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. And that was enough for Elijah. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. He says, you got to get moving, Ahab. Here it's coming. The rain is coming and it's going to be so bad that your chariot's going to get stuck in the mud if you don't start now. You got to get going. Get up. Prepare yourself. Verse 45, it tells us that happened in the meantime, that the sky became black with clouds and with wind, and there was a heavy rain, and Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. That's the valley there. And the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This chapter ends with the hand of God coming upon Elijah and propelling him with superhuman speed ahead of the chariots of the king to meet him in the valley of Jezreel. Validation here that God's powerful hand on this prophet and the word of God was coming to this kingdom. God showed these people they had to make a choice, and they made a choice. Now, as we conclude, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. When the world is falling apart, the Bible tells us you must make a choice. You must take a stand. You cannot serve and worship God and anything else. You cannot have divided loyalties. At the bottom of your outline, I gave a verse from Joshua, chapter 24. Joshua says this, if it seems, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I challenge you today, will you choose to serve the Lord? Will you choose to serve the God of all things, the great King, the great God of the universe who made all things? Will you serve Him? Will you love Him? Will you come to Him in faith? Because Jesus says this of His disciples, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Choose today, friends. What will you choose? Learn to choose. Some of us like keeping our options open. We don't like choosing. We like to have all the desserts. We like to have everything at once. We don't like to make a decision. What decision are you being called to make? Some of you need to make the decision to believe God at His Word. Take Him at His Word and trust Him. The Bible is clear that you 
are lost in your sins until you come in faith to Christ. That without faith, you are lost. You are condemned. You stand condemned in your sins. You need the blood of Jesus who died on the cross to take your sins. You need to choose to believe Him today. God calls you to believe. You need to believe in Him. It's not a work that you can do. It's not some great uh, activity. It is simply trusting in something that's already been done on your behalf, crying out to Him, saying, Lord, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. You have promised me salvation to all who call on you in faith. So today, I believe in you. I receive your gift. I want to be your child. To believe in Christ is the fundamental thing we must do, the first thing we must do. John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the first thing. But secondly, I challenge you who have already trusted in Jesus. There are many in this room who say, yes, I've trusted in Christ. But my question is, who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What takes up your value in your mind? What do you rely on for your comfort and your peace? What do you think about all the time? What is it you place your confidence in? What is your God? Who is your God? And if it's anything but the Lord, you have some repenting to do today. Coming before the God and changing your mind, coming before the God of the universe and saying, Lord, the Bible says you're a forgiving God and you're a jealous God who does not allow us to have two masters. So I challenge you believers to be a disciple of Jesus like you ought to be. You need to, you need to come to grips with the response you have. You must submit yourself, as Romans 12 tells us, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service. And I beg of you, evaluate your heart. If you are not walking where God would have you walk, if you have given your heart to other things, evaluate, is that God really worth it? God calls us today to choose. Learn to choose. Don't limp. The Lord is God, so let's serve Him. Father, we ask You today, please help us to make this choice to serve You fully. We would not be those who limp between opinions. Rather, we would embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We know that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus and so today, Father, if there's someone here who does not yet know you, I pray that today will be the day where they lay down their arms and they embrace the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ alone, by grace, through faith, not of themselves, as a gift of God. And Lord, today I pray if there are Christians here who have done that before but have found themselves astray, have found themselves embracing that which is not valuable, false gods, false worship, Lord, as they've been convicted by the power of your Spirit, I pray today they would, like the children of Israel at this day, bow their heads to the ground and say, the Lord is God, and I will serve Him. He is the Lord. Why wouldn't